Psalm 4. Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. O men, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? Selah. But know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. Selah. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. There are many who say, who will show us some good? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. In peace, I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. Even before we begin to look at Psalm 4 this morning, um, I want you to look back at Psalm 3, where we were last week. In Psalm 3, in verse 5, It says these words, and we spent time meditating on this last week. I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. The image in Psalm 3 is of a man who, though in danger and distress, and last week we spent a good deal of time reflecting on the the depth and reality and really just heart-wrenching nature of the danger and distress that David, David was in in fleeing from his son Absalom in the midst of a rebellion that could have become a massive civil war. The images of danger and distress and this, this man, David, the psalmist, rises in the morning, having passed through the night in safety. It's a morning song. The image is of a man who is confident in the salvation of the Lord as he rises early in the morning to face the dangers of another day. So he reflects, I made it through the night. Surely the Lord will sustain me in the day that is ahead. The images of, a, of this confident psalmist. This morning, we turn to Psalm 4. Uh, Often, it's referred to as an evening prayer. The image is of a person at the end of the day, a person who's faced many afflictions and many adversaries, and now he's making his attempt to lie down and find some sort of peace and rest at the end of a difficult day, and perhaps, more likely, a difficult season. The psalm begins with a fitful, even a desperate plea. You can see it right there at the beginning of Psalm 4. Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. But it ends with a quiet, confident peace. Verse 8, in peace I will both lie down and sleep. Brothers and sisters, this morning, I, I believe that many of our souls... Many of our bodies need this psalm this evening. And you already have an impression that you're going to need this psalm this evening, even facing this coming week. My prayer this morning is that that God would use his word, this psalm, to bring rest to your body and your soul. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would do just this, that your word would work in your people as your spirit applies 
your truth, your reality, your word, and gives us words for our anxious, fitful days. Lord, I pray that you would allow your people who belong to you by your call to sleep tonight. But Lord, I pray that you would teach us how to approach sleep by faith, that we can receive a day of adversity, even anticipate a week of trial with peace, with joy, Lord. We thank you, God. We thank you for your kindness by giving us this psalm this morning. We pray this in Jesus, our hope and rest, in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning's psalm, I hope you really will follow along with me, and you can see some of the ways that you could break it down. And this morning, we're going to approach it by looking at its, the, the flow of its thought, its reason. And it really breaks down into probably four parts. We're going to look at verses 1 through 3, then 4 and 5, 6 and 7, and then finally, verse 8. We're going to begin by considering how this psalmist begins with a, a calming down. He, he, he's calming down by means of a cry for help. Let me be clear at the beginning of this message. I want to give you this psalm so that you can learn to prepare your body and soul for an evening of sleep. It is no mystery in my household that this is not an easy thing for me. This psalm is a psalm that Jeremiah 5 particularly needs to hear and needs to discover how to apply. I do not sleep well at all. I, in fact, the, the prospect of moving into the evening is an anxious thought for me because I know what's waiting there, anxiety on reflection on the, the day that's come and the racing thoughts in my mind. And so if I'm honest, I do want to give you this psalm. But I'll tell you, I want to receive this psalm this morning with you. I want rest for my body and your body, for my soul and and our soul. I want you to imagine moments in your life when you have prayed sentences and when you've had thoughts like these. Answer me when I call, oh God of my righteousness. Answer me. Can't you hear my, my, my fitfulness? Haven't you seen my day, oh God? The images of a person at the end of a difficult day. Lord, help me. Hear my prayer. And it begins a bit frantically. He's not at rest. He is distressed and he is desperate, and so comes his plea. You've been here before. You know what this is like. Some of you know it very recently, and you anticipate it this evening. Quickly, he remembers that the Lord has helped before. Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have given me relief when I was in distress. I remember that last time I called out, and you brought relief. So be gracious to me and hear my prayer. He's bold to ask for grace because he remembers another time when he called out and he received grace. He's been distressed, even frantic in prayer before, and the Lord heard him. He remembers, and the Lord answered him. 
Now note how he addresses the Lord. He doesn't just say, answer me when I call to you, O God. He specifically addresses, O God, of my righteousness. This is a unique phrase. I believe, to to my study, this is the only time when God is addressed as, uh, O God, of my righteousness. Honestly, it's a bit of a difficult phrase to understand. Is this a reference to the righteousness of the Lord or the righteousness of the psalmist? Is this the God of my righteousness? Like, like sort of David's righteousness or God's righteousness that, that David's taken hold of. Do you see? It's a little bit difficult to understand. But I, I would argue in, in many ways it doesn't really matter. It could be either one. The psalmist is clear that the Lord is the God of righteousness. Righteousness is from the Lord, whether or not it is something that David has taken up as his own to walk in, or if he's just claiming God's righteousness. Either way, it it comes from the Lord. The righteousness has its source in the Lord. His righteousness is granted, a granted righteousness to those who trust in him for us to receive, to reflect on, and to walk in. So here at the end of this day of affliction, a day of adversity, the psalmist is just, and the psalmist will find justice. You see, he's crawling out to the God because he believes that he's in a position where he's, he's standing in the just righteousness. The psalmist is righteous in where he's been, but he's got adversaries that have not been just. But when he goes to God, he also knows that he will find the God of justice. Not just that he is just, but God is righteous. And so he cries out to the Lord because he is God of my righteousness. Now, how does it continue? Verse two gives us a little bit of the context of the distress. O men, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? Sit in that, Selah. Now, just in the second verse, the psalmist begins to recall the adversity of the day. He's called out to the Lord, answer me. And he's sort of before the Lord, calling out to his adversaries, reflecting on that adversity. He remembers some of the relational heartache of the day. He can feel again the slanders of the day and the false accusations of the day. I know how I experience that. I experience it in my body before I experience it in my mind. At the end of a day in which accusations, like just stuff, you know? I heard what somebody said. I heard how someone was thinking. I have a strong impression of what someone is thinking and they're just not telling me. And you know how I, how I remember that? You know how I call it to mind? My body calls it to mind because my chest tightens up and my stomach sinks. And then I'm like, why'd that happen? Oh, that's right. Now I remember. How long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long, oh men, will you love vain words and seek after lies? It's the, the feeling as a mind involuntarily remembers involuntarily remembers a difficult conversation. You're not brooding. Involuntarily, you remember the unkind, inconsiderate email or text message that you just said, you know what, I'm gonna put that over there. It's okay, but the body says, no, it's right here. It's right here in your gut. 
you, you, that cold shoulder that you just decided to say maybe they were having a bad day. It's still with you in the evening, a report of some, how someone's talking about you behind your back that you decided to set aside and you, you call it to mind and you say, how long? How many cold shoulders? How many words whispered? And at the end of the day, you don't have to try to remember. You, you need no effort to call these things to mind. They're always with you and you can feel them in your chest and you become aware of them in the pit of the stomach and then... It continues, how long will you love vain words and, and speak lies, wondering how, how long do I have to feel like this? And maybe it's not involuntary anymore. Maybe now you don't count your blessings, you count your adversaries. And in the evening, their names come quickly to mind, and you can't sleep because you brood on the vain words and lies. He continues, Verse three, but know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. The adversaries are speaking many words. It's clear because they're speaking vain words and seeking lies. The adversaries have said many words and the tightness of the chest and the racing of the mind remind you that many words have been spoken and they're words of adversity. And the words are present with you with the prospect of another sleepless night. But the Lord has also spoken. The Lord has also spoken. I know that the Lord has a people because the Lord has said he has a people. And the Lord has made a covenant with that people. And he said words of promise about the nature of the relationship that he has with that people. You see, there are many words that are floating around out there that cause a tightness in the chest, but the psalmist calms to, calls to mind other words. If the Lord has set me apart for himself, surely, surely he will hear my cry. I mean, it's the logic of the psalm. I would argue it's the bottom baseline logic of the psalm. If the Lord has made a people who belong to him, he'll hear them when they cry to him. And we can look at the scriptures and say, you know what? It doesn't just have to be true of my life. I can remember a day when I cried out to the Lord and the Lord answered, but it can be true of his people. And we can go to the word and say, I can remember times when the people, our people who call God our father, I can remember when we have cried out to God and he has heard our cry. Let me suggest that the rest of this psalm is already guaranteed. It is simply an outflowing of verse three, which is the theological ground root of the psalm. It is a guaranteed reality what flows after. Verse one begins in distress with an anxious cry to the Lord at the end of a day of adversity and yet remembers that the Lord has heard and responded to his people in grace the before. Verse two calls to mind the trials and the cruelty of the day and asks how long do I have to suffer like this? And then verse three, the key, the psalmist remembers that he belongs to the Lord. And what began as a cry that the Lord would hear now becomes a confidence that the Lord does hear. Do you see it? He moves from fretting to a genuine freedom that the Lord has heard his cry. What began as a cry of distress has become a prayer of confidence. Now, 
I want you to see and remember this psalm. Do you remember evenings like this? Evenings where you fall back on the couch at the end of a day in exhaustion and you perhaps feel alone, even abandoned, and you cry out to the Lord for help. And you know God's helped you before. Will he help you this time, though? I mean, this time it's really bad. This time it feels horrible. But as you reflect on the rage and, and as you rage about your adversaries crying out, you call to mind and you begin to settle in to the settled will and the settled work of the Lord. And so you're no longer just asking to be heard. You're confidently declaring, God, you hear me. Uh, You hear me because I belong to you of your choosing, not because I cried loud enough, but because I belong to you of your purpose and will. There's a lesson for us already in this psalm on the evening in which we find ourselves distressed and face sleepless nights. May we begin to calm down with a simple call for help that remembers the previous seasons of grace. And all of a sudden, we're not counting our adversities, are we? We're counting genuine blessings, the appearance of grace and mercy in our life. And we're at least at this moment beginning to calm down a little. Now, as the psalm continues in verse 4 and 5, we can see an orienting of the emotional life. As we're finally calmed down, we still have emotions. What do we do with them now? Verse four, be angry and do not sin. Ponder on your hearts. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. There's a gritty reality to these verses, isn't there? They acknowledge the reality of a day or even a season of life that's filled with anxiety, stress, that there is actual such a thing as a cause for anger. I mean, you know that in your heart and and someone has told you, oh, God's with you. And you're like, I mean, I'm not arguing about whether or not God is with me. I'm just saying I'm angry. (laughs) Do you not get it? And, and God being with me and, and me belonging to God and so on doesn't mitigate the reality that did you see that? Did you hear that? How did you react when that happened to you? You see, there's a gritty reality to this verse. Yes, cause for anger. The anger seems in the psalm to be justified, but the call is not to sin. Okay, well, that's gonna be easy. <laughs> I'm angry, <laughs> The temptation in the circumstance of justified anger is to give full vent to the anger. What does it look like to give full vent to the anger? Well, it's to give anger control of wherever you go and whatever you do. It's not to admit that I, I am justified in my anger. It's to claim that I'm justified in what I do because I'm angry. So you fit. You rage. You'll even join the adversaries in their vain words and their lies as your anger leads you. It's probably why they're fitting and raging. Because they're angry because they do not have, James says. After all, anger is in control. And anger does not follow the path of righteousness all on its own. 
It needs to be under. Anger needs to be granted faith to believe in the good way and the good hope and the good salvation of our God. The psalmist remembers at the end of the day of adversity that even a just cause for anger does not justify every response that flows out of that anger. Did you hear it? A just cause for anger does not justify every one of your behaviors, every one of your actions that comes out of that anger. So in your anger, do not sin. You may be just in your anger, but that does not justify your sin. So be careful. Consider carefully. Do not act rashly. That is, do not act directly out of your anger. Rather, what does it say? Ponder. Ponder in your own hearts. I mean, you already are. You didn't have to be told to do that. (laughs) But you did have to be told this on your beds. Not out there raging, not on the internet. Nope. Not on your text messages and not on your email threads, on your beds. Ponder on your beds. Be silent. In the day of adversity, consider your cause for anger, but do not lash out. Be silent. Look at verse 5. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. This is fascinating. I kind of, you know, in, in, in my justified angerness. I wish there was like a 4B that said, you know, be silent and then recognize you were right, you know? And so, and then go and offer right sacrifices. Now, this agitated soul is now warned and it's now quieted. And now the Lord gives a good outlet for the agitation and anxiety. I'll be honest, I never thought of this before. I've never thought of right sacrifices, a rightly ordered worshiping life through the means that God has given for us to worship as a good outlet for agitation and anxiety. That's new. It's often the case that we know even instinctively that, we, that, that there are things that we should not do. We know that just because we're angry, that doesn't mean we should lash out and fight, but what in the world am I supposed to do, you know? Like, anger isn't a thought. <laughs> Anger's a thing in the chest and in the gut, and it's in the veins, and you can feel it. And it's shooting you full of all kinds of chemicals, right? And you, and you want to fight. What am I supposed to do with all of this? I, I know that there's things that I'm not supposed to do, but what in the world? And the, the psalmist says, offer right sacrifices. There's a labor for all of that adrenaline pumping through your body. Trust in the Lord. What might a person, why might a person sin in their anger? Some wrong has been done, right? Just think about this. You You don't like how it feels when a wrong has been done to you, and so you set out to make the wrong right, because that will make the anger go away, and you don't like how the anger feels, and it feels like doing something about the anger to set out with the anger to fix the wrong thing. And if the person who caused you such wrong won't make it right, you'll make it right for them, right? You know what right looks like, and you know how they can make it right. And so you're going to go 
make it right. Essentially, some wrong's been done to you, and now you set out to do the business of making it right. But is that how it actually works? The reality is we don't make things right. It's the fundamental reality of the nature of the fall. Once the wrong is done, the fall has taken place. Adam, Eve can't say, ah, man, you know that thing earlier today? I was hiding over here. You passed by. didn't, like, you know, make myself known. But while I was hiding over here, I realized there's something I could do to make it right. So let me tell you all about my plan for how I broke the world with my sin. That's not how it works. It's broken. We don't make things right. Wrongs break the world. Wrongs bend reality and make it crooked. This is why we call the entrance of sin into the world the the fall. It's the way it is now. Whatever sin has justified our anger, it has bent and misshapen our lives. And there's no labor available to us, motivated by anger or just a careful thoughtfulness that can make the wrong right. We know it in our hearts that we have no power on our own to correct what is broken, and it's half of what makes us so angry. The wrong has already been said. We're going to hurt something, but we know that doesn't even work. What we're really confessing there is that we are not that redeemer. In the end, we cannot fix what is broken. All that we can do is appeal to the creator in the hope and with a confidence there is a redeemer, a wrong writer, that we who are unable in our hiding and in our sin or in our brokenness, we are unable to redeem. Is there a creator who has a plan to take a fallen world and move it through redemption to restoration? And the fact is, worship is the ordained means, specifically sacrifice. For David, that was through the temple sacrifices or the sacrifices in the tabernacle at the time until God would provide a final and sufficient sacrifice. It was sacrifices that looked forward to a redeemer. It was the context of right sacrifices that the worshiper is given these images and these remembrances of the dreadful reality of sinfulness. Blood everywhere with the sacrifices. But he's also given an image that sin can only be truly dealt with in relationship with the Lord. That's why we don't sacrifice to each other. The sacrifices are brought before the Lord according to his design. Sin requires more than an apology. Sin requires a sacrifice. That's why we can't fix it. For us, we worship through Jesus Christ, the one that is looked for in the sacrifices, our atoning sacrifice, who who both reconciles the redeemed to the Father and judges the living and the dead. Let me summarize this for for us in the light of the gospel. In the day of adversity, when we're sinned against, and when we're righteous in our anger, we have confidence that the Lord sees our need 
and he hears our cry, but we're still like, oh, great, so now I have a good ear for the, for, to hear about how the world's bent. I'm glad he knows that now. And so we ponder our trial. But then rather than lashing out and trying to unbend the world, we look to the Lord who is redeemer and judge. We offer right sacrifices and put our trust in the Lord. We know that he doesn't just know it's bent. We know that he is the redeemer who genuinely reconciles. We don't long for vengeance. We long for redemption. Our anger cries for retribution, but our quieted thoughts begin to cry for restoration. One of the most amazing things that I have come to understand in recent years is that anger can be righteous. Anger is a right response to a broken thing, a broken life a broken relationship. But often anger can become so big that we don't quiet ourselves to see that underneath of the anger is the real thing, sadness. What What we really are, if we would just quiet ourselves for a minute, we're sad that it's broken. We liked the not broken thing. And it makes us angry that it's, broken, but really we're just sad because we don't know how to make it right. Offer right sacrifices. Tell the Lord, and now that we're quieted down on our bed, we've pondered and we've spoken. We tell him, God, I'm broken because this thing is broken, and I want it. I want it not broken again. I don't want to just break more things. I want it not broken again, Redeemer. It's interesting. Ephesians chapter 4, we read it earlier, and it continues a little bit later in a short passing reference, quotes this psalm in reference to how believers are toward one another. Be angry and do not sin, it says in verse 26. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. I think one way to apply that is ponder become quiet and allow your anger to become what it really is in longing and trust in the Lord, sadness. Because anger can't be soothed without retribution, and we know it doesn't work. But sadness can be soothed with a hope of redemption. Most assuredly, the agitation of David that he's experiencing is within the court and nobility of Israel. In verse 2, it says, O men, and the, the, the phrase that is behind that in the Hebrew is sons of men or men of rank and renown. At the temple, the fact is, these men of rank and renown within the context of Israel could actually be reconciled as brothers. They can meet one another that they are not reconciled to, offer right sacrifices, be reconciled to their God in hope of redemption, look at one another and say, can we be reconciled in this reconciliation? Now, I know that it's often true that our greatest agitation and anger, the greatest broken things have often come in the context of how we have treated one another in the church, which is why Paul in Ephesians grabs this verse and plops it right down in the middle of how we're to treat one another. Brothers and sisters, we have one singular means by which to put an end to our struggle 
in the context of the church. This means it's available to us day after day, evening after evening. It is not to fit and to rage. It is not to gossip. It's not to find another church where that won't happen. You've tried that like three or four times, right? We are, there is one hope, we are together reconciled in Christ. One hope. This is already true. The reconciliation is already true in Christ. It's what Mark was reading about in the prayer of confession. I may be justly angry with my brother or my sister, but my appeal is to Christ. Jesus, you suffered that brother, that sister's righteous judgment for the sin, the wrong, the slander, the lies, all of it. That brother, that sister levied wrong toward me, and you have suffered in his place, in her place, for them. I put my trust in the Lord, not only that I will be vindicated, not only that I will be reconciled, but that you have put an end to this wrong by your suffering on the cross. And you know what becomes true in this relationship even before we walk in it together? There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And often I will reread that and say, that means there's no anger for God in God for me. No condemnation, no anger, no justice that remains to be met out. And when I remember that for the one in the church who has wronged me, and then I offer right sacrifices and I look to the Lord, I see there's no anger that remains for the Lord at what I am so angry about this evening. I trust in the Lord. And at the end of a day of adversity, the gospel gives a truly righteous orientation for our emotional life. That I lay down, essentially, if I continue in that anger, and I call it righteous anger, I'm saying there is anger, there is condemnation that yet remains, Lord, that Jesus has not yet paid for. This isn't true. This isn't the gospel that we preach. This is not the gospel that we believe. But we go in the reconciliation that is in Christ to go now discover how to walk that out together. Verse 6. In verses 6 and 7, we remember joy when no good thing can be found. Now, there's a weird one. In verses 6 and 7, we see that there are two ways to conclude a difficult day. Verse six. There are many who say, who will show us some good. Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. There are those who look back on a day and say, well, that went horribly, (laughs) right? Can you see even one good, right thing in the day? Will anyone show us some good? Many say, here's the problem with a complaint like that. We know that the Lord is the sovereign God. We know that he could have brought some sort of physical comfort, some sort of emotional rest in the day, but he didn't. That's why many translators put the quotation mark after the end of verse 6. 
this way of thinking, the many who think this way figure that because there is no material good, because the car broke down, wouldn't start, because you didn't get the promotion you were hoping for, because the AC went out, because you bounced the the automatic payment for the credit card, because you heard about what someone is saying about you, surely this means that the Lord has not looked favorably on you. So wouldn't it be nice, God, if I quoted your own words and your own blessing back to you, and maybe tomorrow you could have the light of your countenance shine on me? It's it's not a prayer, it's an accusation. They grab the ironic blessing and turn it into a magical incantation for a better outcome tomorrow. Because look at what their hope is. Their hope, will you show us, who will show us some good? But verse 7 offers another way. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. They get themselves some good. They get abounding good. And the psalmist says, oh, I have more joy in what the Lord has placed, his hope, his peace, his rest, his grace, his truth, his belonging to him in me than when you finally get the answer to your prayer for some good, even abundant good. It isn't the way of the... This isn't the way of the many, but it is the way of the faithful that at the end of a day of trouble, they've calmed down. They've begun to remember that the Lord hears his complaints and having rightly ordered his emotional life around the redemptive work of God, he remembers this final thing. He remembers he who has moved from anger to sadness. He remembers joy, joy. The psalm began with an agitated plea, but by the time we get to the end of verse 7, the psalmist has recovered the reality of faith. The Lord hears me. The Lord is just, even in the midst of my adversaries, the Lord is just. That's joy. That's rest. I can sleep in that. That's, that's better than any good thing, any abundance of grain or wine, than any begging for a better tomorrow could ever give him. The Lord is just, and my hope is in him. Oh God, hear my prayer, has become by this point in our psalm, oh God, in you is my hope and joy. But you kind of got to go through the whole thing, don't you? (laughs) It's kind of how we are. It's not like, now make sure you you figure out how to skip verses 1 through 5, skip 6, get yourself to 7. There's a way in which we need to walk. And it's given to us. We do begin with, oh God, and we remember you are my hope and joy. Verse eight. Now by the time we get here, there's no more argument to be made. There's just reality. There's a lying down in peace. In peace, I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. The Lord's the one who put the joy in him. He didn't muster up joy. The reality of the Lord put joy in him, and now the Lord makes him dwell in safety. What an amazing way to end the psalm. Remember how it began. Answer me when I call. I'm going to go to sleep now. Now he has the Lord's presence, and he's learned silence in the Lord's presence. 
He not only finds joy here, he finds peace and rest. And notice it says, you alone, for you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. No fitting, no raging, no planning, no reconciling, no apologies, no righting of wrongs, only the Lord the hope and redemption, the joy and peace, the righteousness and glory that is found in the Lord makes him dwell in safety. I listened to a sermon on this passage by Alistair Begg. Let me just suggest it is never a good idea to listen to a sermon by Alistair Begg, for those of you who know him, before you're about to preach a passage, because then you're like, I've got to learn a Scottish accent. I've got to do this. Now, he, he exposits okay as well. But in that sermon, he calls to mind how a child in distress will often plead with his father, with his mother, and and say in the distress, will you snuggle me? I get that. I've often often seen parents with strollers on the sidewalk in in front of my house, and, and I've joked, wouldn't it be nice if God made like really big people like Nephilim or something? Think it could just push us around in strollers, you know? Wouldn't it be great if there was like a really big, powerful being in the universe that could just snuggle us? Wouldn't it be great if there was some sort of warm comfort that could could rock us to sleep in the day of adversity? Children know what it is to be comforted by the touch of the one who loves them. And often they'll say, Don't go until I fall asleep. It's not just the touch. It's the reality of the knowledge of what to the child is omnipotent presence. But that's just to the child. The parents in the room know better. It's not omnipotent presence. It's just doing our best. But with the Lord, we say, don't don't go until I fall asleep. And then we sleep And we wake, and his mercies are new. Because he didn't go anywhere. He's actually, really, omnipotently with his people. As the Lord is with us, we find rest. Because the worries, the trials, and the adversity of this world are no longer ours to carry the burden of reconciliation, the burden of unbending the world. It's no longer ours. It's his. And we've become situated in the greatest of joys and sweetest rest. I cannot save myself. I cannot protect myself. I cannot justify or defend myself. I cannot redeem myself. My trust is in the Lord who makes me dwell in safety. Alistair Begg offers this most practical question. How are we going to learn how to lie down in our graves if we have not learned how to lie down in our beds? I would suggest to you that that we have a daily practice for facing our own dying in hope of redemption. To lay down and face our sleeping that the Lord keeps us. I think one of the most practical 
I think this is one of the most practical psalms. We can, we can practice its reality day by day and, and specifically, right, evening by evening. We can become a people who approach the end of our day, who enter our evenings not with trepidation, because we know how that goes, but perhaps with faith. One more thing that Alistair Begg put me on to, it's a quote that's been condensed, and then I've condensed it further to hopefully make it a little more readable from Henry Scudder's reflection on Psalm 4. I commend this to you. We'll put it on the sermon notes on the podcast so you can go and learn from it again. He says, when you have walked with God from morning until night, it remains that you conclude the day well, when you would give yourself to rest at night. First, look back and consider how you've walked throughout the day. Reform what you find amiss and rejoice or be grieved as you find all that you have done well and that you have done ill. The word in the psalm is ponder on your beds. Second, since you cannot sleep in safety if God, who is your keeper, does not wake and watch for you, and though you have God to watch when you sleep, you cannot be safe if he that watches you is your enemy. Friends, there is a call to faith in this room. This reality, this hope that we have is by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. There's a call to faith for those who have not believed that you would be reconciled to your enemy, the Lord God, by his redemptive work. It is right and good that at night you renew and confirm your peace with God by faith and prayer, commending and committing yourself to God's care by prayer with thanksgiving before you go to bed. Then, then you shall lie down in safety. Third, all this being done while you are yet putting off your apparel, when you are lying down and when you are in bed, before you sleep, it's good that you commune with your own heart. Fall asleep with some heavenly meditation. I'm thinking Psalm 1. He meditates on the law of the Lord day and night. Some heavenly meditation, then will your sleep be more sweet and more secure, your dreams fewer and more comfortable, your head be fuller of good thoughts, and your heart will be in a better frame when you awake, whether in the night or in the morning. How practical. What a beautiful prescription. I would just offer one last perspective, and we'll probably come to this when we return to the end of Romans 1 in the near future. One of the problems with the way that we think in this world is we have begun to think of ourselves as only bodies. We've lost what is fully human about ourselves, and we've begun to treat ourselves only with prescriptions. If there is a, a gift of a medication for you, I thank God for it. Our bodies need treated by physical things. But we are not just physical things, are we? We are people with a creator who know of redemption. Let me suggest to you, there is not finally a sleeping pill for me or for you. There's redemption. 
for you and for me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for all of your good gifts. And Lord, we thank you above all things for the good gift of your word that knows us better than we know ourselves. There are things in this psalm that I have learned I did not know about me. And you've spoken them. Lord, I pray that as your spirit goes into the places in me and in those who have gathered this morning that we don't even know about ourselves, that you would apply your word there and that we would begin to receive your, the application of your grace there with faith. And so take hold of all of the good gifts that are for us. The greatest gift, of course, being the salvation that is in Jesus Christ and all of the gifts that then flow from that redemption. Free us unto peace and rest. And Lord, I would ask one last thing, that even in this church, in this particular body, that it would work out in the beautiful fruit of the gospel, which is reconciliation with one another. Not because we've been kind, not because we've finally apologized as if we can unbend the world with an apology, but because we remember the redemption that stands to reconcile us to one another. We thank you, God. We ask for all of these things in your good name, things to ponder on our beds. Thank you, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.